Welcome to The Loins of History. My name is Jay and I'm joined by my co-host Colin. And this is our second episode in our Fall of Empire series on the downfall of Rome. We are a podcast that seeks to connect history to current events and to correct political and historical illiteracy. And with this series, we are looking to see what does the study of various empires and their collapse can tell us about just kind of the sentiment surrounding the West in the United States today. It feels like we're in this period of relative decline. Does the fall of the Roman Empire have anything to say about that? And so Colin is here to talk this week about the fall of Rome's military. So Colin, what you got for us? Well, this is going to be another exciting episode. The military fall and the, the decline of the Roman military. It's it's interesting. Like last week, we talked about the economy. And you know, I thought that while great, there's a lot of very abstract thoughts that you have to deal with when you start talking about like the inflation and applying some modern economic theories kind of to ancient times. And you're starting to have to pull, you really had to pull a lot of different factors and put them together. To be honest, the military aspect of it is pretty cut and dry. Like yeah. it got to the point they where they lost the battle. Y- you lost the battle. <laughs> Thousands died. The barbarians yeah. sacked Rome. Yeah. You know, point blank. Didn't have enough forces to, to field another army, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Rome is no more. It's much more cut and dry. And so in some ways that's not as exciting, but actually I think for today we can really go through and, and talk about it and kind of make it exciting and do some thought experiments with with comparing the early, and I say early, early to mid-Roman Empire and compare it to the late stage antiquity military. So I do want to say there's three, I guess, key takeaways that we're going to take from this episode. So when it comes to the decline of Rome and its military specifically, I think there's three, there's a ton. First off, there's I mean, you could go through like Edward Gibbons' Decline of Fall of the Western Roman Empire, and there's different historians talk about different things that caused it. But I think there's three really big ones and kind of sub things under that. But the loss of martial vigor is the first one. They simply just lost the will to fight toward the end of the Roman Empire. Internal collapse of population due to famine, plague, and civil war took a toll on the military. They simply couldn't field enough soldiers toward the end. And then the third one is barbarians. Everybody knows the barbarians at the gates. There's the Huns, the Goths, the Vandals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to get into a lot more of them. At some point, uh, there was just a straw that broke the camel's back when it came to the barbarians. Their numbers started swelling for a number of different reasons, and they simply could not hold the tide of the barbarian horde back anymore. And they eventually sacked Rome in 470, well, excuse me, 410 and later in the 450s before finally deposing Romulus Augustus in 476. So we're going to go through that a little bit as well. So with that being said, let's start with a broad overview. And the key word is broad overview of Roman military history. Keep in mind that Rome was founded in 753 BC. And, you know, we talked about the decline not starting until like 180 AD. So that's what quick math there, 930 odd years of history that we have to kind of cover. I just want to talk about a few key victories and differences between in the early Roman military history. So Rome in the Republic period was an agrarian society that really valued a simple kind of lifestyle, really the complete opposite from the decadent imperial age and late antiquity. They valued manual labor, hard agrarian farm farmers work. They were, they were basically country boys that liked to fight. That's kind of a really gross simplification. But if you think about it, they were landowning citizens who joined the army. It was a highly valued and prestigious position to be in the military. And they were all trained at some level as levies and auxiliaries. And they had kind of their own, think about it like reserve training. And then they relied on these levies when they needed them to come and fight Rome's battles. And that worked effectively up until 397 when the Gauls invaded and actually sacked Rome in 397. And it was led by a man named Brennus of the Gaul. And this is where you get the term woe to the vanquished, where the Romans were complaining about the amount of silver they had to pay 
And he threw a sword on the scales and said, Vi Victus, and that means woe to the vanquished and made them pay a lot more money than they wanted to. But after that, the Romans managed to recover militarily and economically and began to rebuild and retake some of their former lands. And one of the key initial conflicts that I think shaped the Roman military was the campaigns against Pyrrhus of Epirus. So little little tidbit on Pyrrhus. He was uh, born in the Macedonian area. He was actually the second cousin of Alexander the Great. He eventually was part of the Antigonid dynasty, I believe, actually considered one of the greatest generals of his time, despite the reputation that he had later as somebody who would win, but somehow end up losing in the end. Still lost anyway. Still yeah. lost anyway. Yeah, he was actually killed at the Battle of Argos. I think there was a woman who threw a tile out of a window in a street battle and hit him in the head. Nice. And he died, yeah. Good um, for her. Yeah, good for her. Anyway, anyway, when he, long story short, they came into conflict because Magna Gratia, which is southern Italy, called for help. And he came to fight the Romans who were a growing power on the peninsula. So he fought, they fought the Romans at the battles of a couple notable ones at Heraclea, Asculum, and Beneventum. He's famous as quoted after defeating the Romans that another victory like that against the Romans and we will surely be defeated basically saying that in these three battles against the Romans, the Romans were outmatched in a sense of professionalism and strategy because Pyrrhus was this great general. He had the most disciplined fighting force of Macedonians in the world at the time. This is only two or three decades after Alexander the Great, yet the Romans managed after each battle to inflict more and more damage and just drain the Macedonian army till it was nothing. And mind you, uh, Pyrrhus had war elephants as well. So this won't be the first time that the Romans learned to fight against war elephants. Hint, hint for mm-hmm. future conflict. But one thing I want to point out about the Romans, going back to their kind of martial vigor, even after losing three times, they kept coming at the, the Macedonians. They kept rallying forces, finding different fighters who were all well-trained. Coming back, I, I say well-trained, who were trained enough that they were not just average peasants or plebes that had no sword handling skills. They were able to pick up and go fight and inflict damage and eventually were victorious even in defeat. And that's Hmm. something that's really important to remember about the Roman Empire for a long time, that even after a defeat, they would manage to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat, eventually crush everyone. So there's like this will to win that was there that may have not been there later on. And you know, you could attribute part of that to the lifestyle that they chose to live we would refer to it as Spartan, which is more Greco than Roman, but mm-hmm. uh, it was it was that it was a tough life. They were they were farmers. They were outdoors. They lived a simple life. That's what they wanted, and so they and they learned to fight, and they were proud of it. There was a prestige behind it, but this really elevated them. If you've ever read Clausewitz, he talks about the levels of war, like tactical, operational, strategic. This kind of made them masters of tactics in fighting battles against potentially a superior foe. And a few decades later, so they they took over Magna Graecia, which is southern Italy and and Sicily. This put them in direct competition with the Carthaginians and begins the the Punic Wars. So there are three Punic Wars, the most famous of which was the Second Punic War against Hannibal Barca. His father famously fought the Romans in the First Punic War, hated the Romans for their loss and the indemnity that they put on them, and trained his sons to hate the Romans, at which Hannibal who is a true strategic genius, decided to march his elephants through Spain, around southern France, across the Alps, into Italy, and defeated the Romans numerous times. Some of the battles like Lake Tresemane and Cannae, pretty much every military historian has studied Cannae and the the engulfing tactics that he used and the ambushing. Um, But he, think about Hannibal, their armies were not necessarily superior to the Romans, from a man-to-man perspective, armor. They were generally mercenaries. Uh, They were just not as well-trained. They didn't have kind of this fighting spirit, but Hannibal did, and he led them well. But he forced the Romans to start elevating the way that they conducted wars because they were fighting another superpower at this point. And he, his whole goal when he was marching around Italy was not necessarily to sack Rome because he knew he would, if he sacked Rome, it would be the end of him. He was trying to inflict enough damage to force the Roman city-states who were not fully citizens yet, but were part of the Roman, what we would call the Roman Empire, the Roman territory, into breaking off and joining him, which they never did to the Romans' uh, 
to their luck. They never broke off. So he can never rally enough support and his supply lines eventually faded. But he was eventually defeated at Zama by Scipio Africanus. And if you've ever heard of Cato the Elder uh, saying, saying Carthago Delinda Est after every speech. Carthage must be destroyed. Yeah, every, <laughs> after every speech. And the Third Punic War was basically the Romans mopping up. So you can see this shift in the Romans fighting this very localized fighting, kind of just honestly going down the road to the next city-state and fighting, picking a fight with a couple hundred, to now waging war at this regional conflict level with soldiers who are not yet professional all the time. They're still levies. And then there's what's called, and this happened around 106. So Gaius Marius, he instituted the Marian reforms. So at this point, around 100 BC, the Roman Empire was starting to circle the Mediterranean and push into Spain, North Africa, into Greece. The need for a professional army was absolutely essential for it to continue to expand. So part of these Marian reforms were figuring out how to create a professional army that could be trained and standardized and kept uh, so like when we think of professional army, we're not talking about soldiers who just fight a lot, but we're th- they are full time being paid. They're not they're not farming during the summer months and then coming and fighting in the spring. They are soldiers for 20 years, 25 years. So they are full time soldiers. They're being trained to a standard and they are organized in a standard type of formation and broken apart. You know, we've heard of the legion, the cohort, mandibles, things like that. Those are all universalized across the entire Roman army. And Marian was, excuse me, the Marian reforms were instrumental in providing a template for how the Romans could professionalize their army and create an effective fighting force that could not only march the same, but fight the same, be led the same, armed the same, and then fend for itself and carry its own equipment. So the Roman Empire's armies could sustain themselves when they went on a march. They carried their supplies, Mm -hmm. they had engineers, and they could build their own forts and siege equipment. So they were self-sufficient. So they could truly go long distances and fight hard battles without relying on these really long supply lines. So it was really a, it set them up to now expand the empire to even greater um, greater heights and further the borders of the Roman Empire to be used by like Julius Caesar going on campaigns across Gaul and even into Great Britain. He, he did invade Great Britain, though it wasn't for another hundred years that actually Britannia was subjugated by Claudius. Octavian expanded into uh, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Asia Minor, and Trajan eventually expanded the empire to its greatest extent. So at this point, you have a, by the time Trajan and then Hadrian begins the consolidation where he starts building walls and fortifications and deciding to limit the empire's advance, you had a professional army that was paid. You had auxiliaries that were fit, that could fit into the Roman army and their tactics on the battlefield. You had supply lines that could support the army. You had a population that could continually replenish the Roman army forces. So as soldiers retired or died from conflicts, they could replenish those numbers. At this point, there's really not very many civil wars or civil conflicts internally where you're just having Romans killing Romans. And then if you look at the border, they had organized with Hadrian. Uh, You know, there's Hadrian's Wall, obviously in Britannia, but then along the Rhine, the Danube, out into even Mesopotamia, uh, they had set up fortifications with the legions. So the legions were split where they would have centralized fortresses, then they would watch towers and small forts in between, and then even have auxiliaries manning different positions within nearby cities and towns and villages so they could have a rapid response in case barbarians came over the border. So during this period of good emperors from beginning with Trajan, excuse me, Nerva before Trajan, all the way to Marcus Aurelius, you had this very peaceful time because Rome's military was such a juggernaut at this point. Like, I don't think we, like the U.S. military, we think about like, it's it's really hard for people to visualize the U.S. military truly losing in a battle or even in a war that we don't just decide to leave, like Afghanistan or Vietnam. Like we didn't really lose those militarily. We just decided not to fight them anymore. But yeah. Rome very rarely lost battles. And it, you know, the to the point that those losses are like very well known, like the Teutoburg Forest or... Mm-hmm. You know, Canae, obviously with Hannibal, but that happened 300 years before. So they just didn't lose battles. I mean, they slaughtered barbarians in mass. They butchered their enemies left and right. And if they did happen to lose, they just 
marched on for every pound of flesh they you took from them, they would take 10 from you. So it was really this juggernaut supported, as we talked about last week, by this robust economy that could pay these soldiers, they could pay for their equipment. It was just unstoppable at this point. So I think the question now should be, where did it all go wrong for him? Yeah, that's that's it. Were you about to say something else? No. Where did it all? Go? I want you to answer the question. <laughs> where? Call, tell me. Where did it all go wrong? Well, man, there's there's a lot of different things. Like I mentioned, there's a lot of different places where it went wrong. But I mean, let's look at the loss of martial vigor. That's I don't know where I heard that term. If I just made it up in my own brain or whatever. I heard it from somebody. Sounds great. It sounds great. So I just rolled with it. But like I said, in the, in the early, the Roman Republic, like it was an honor to fight for Rome. But during the crisis of the second or third century, kind of late imperial Rome, the Romans just didn't want to fight anymore. Hmm. They had kind of gone used, not only was there decadence in Rome, like the city of Rome, but that had spread really through Italy as a whole and really had kind of festered into some of the provinces as well. Like the legions of North Africa, even kind of Asia minor and mess and Palestine, they just didn't really do a lot of fighting anymore. So they weren't very good. Your legions on like the Rhine and the Danube. And then, you know, they saw fighting all the time. So they were traditionally pretty tough, but a lot of Romans just didn't want to fight anymore. So, you know, do I really want to march into Germany? I heard there was a slaughter in, you know, the Teutoburg Forest. I don't really want to march in there. I want somebody else to do my fighting. I'd rather go into this profession or something like that. The will to fight where if you have an enemy marching through your territory and he just butchered an army of Romans, do you want to go fight him? There's just a sense and you read it. And I think it, in Edward Gibbons, he talks about it too. And his it was mostly referring to like the decadence and kind of like they just lost this will, this cultural will to continue on because they had embraced this decadent lifestyle. That was huge. And you kind of couple that with a plague. So I mentioned plague and famine and the civil war. So during to compound issues, the Romans started to face during, I think it was, they called it the Antonine plague, but it had mostly taken place during Marcus Aurelius's reign. This plague wiped out like I think some estimates go as high as like 10% of the Roman Empire where they either had it and they like never really fully recovered or they died. And historians kind of debate on like what disease it was, but they think it was some sort of pox, like smallpox, because they talk about getting these lesions and blisters and horrible fevers. Uh, and it was just, it was bad. It was not quite as bad as the bubonic plague, but it was still a terrible disease. But you know, you think you lose almost 10% of your population. That's a lot of people. And not only is it a lot of people, but if let's say 5% of those are young people who have not had kids yet, like they're not only are they dying, but then they're not having kids to replace the people who would just die from old age. And that kind of compounds. So you during in Marcus Aurelius, in order to scramble, had to bring in outsiders. So potentially like barbarian tribes that had lived beyond the border to man the farms. He had to bring them into the armed forces even. So they had to fight. And there was later, the later part of the empire with Diocletian. So I mean, before then you had to be a Roman citizen, but then Diocletian mm. opened, it was like citizen, non-citizen, doesn't matter. You're going to fight in the legion. Not It's not going to be separated legion and auxiliaries. So That's, they, that had to have been a huge change. Massive. You're talking about the loss of martial vigor. Like, you know, if you're not even a Roman ethnically, Politically, like I'm a Roman citizen. Religiously, that comes up. Religiously, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. Like, how? Why would you? Why would that will to fight even be remotely close to what it was if you like grew up in, you know, central Italy and you have land there and your family's been there for generations? That's it's a completely different motivation there. So, I, I was going to get to this later, but I'm going to say this now. We're going to come back to it. So, yes, part of that loss of martial vigor. When you bring in non-Romans, like not even Roman citizens, like they don't have to be from the the Italian peninsula, but you started having emperors too that were not from the Italian peninsula. Like there was a long period of like Thracian emperors and coming from all over the empire. But you start bringing in what they would view as barbarians. So like Frankish, Gothic, you know, Hunnish even. 
soldiers into the ranks, a lot of the, there was obviously going to be um, kind of conflict between those two, the distrust, I think is probably the best way to put it. But if you now start seeing the Romans, you're a Goth and you settled in Roman territory, let's say, and then 10 years later, you're with the Romans and they're ordering you to go fight the Goths. Like, who's your allegiance lied to? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, some of these Germanic barbarians were really good generals, like Alaric, for example. They were really good. And it's like, why do I want to listen to these Ro- these pompous Roman fools who don't even want to do the fighting? I'm looking yeah. around the legion, and it's almost all Germans who are doing the fighting for the Romans. Why do I want to do yeah. this? I'm yeah. just gonna- and switching like sides on the battlefield was a thing. Yeah, I'm just going to take all this stuff, and I'm going to go march on Rome. They they Honorius has broken his promise. I'm going to go march on Rome and sack it. That, that's what Alec yeah. did. So that dynamic definitely comes into play, and that's absolutely part of it. You just don't want to fight, and you don't have the numbers, and suddenly now you're like, okay – why do I even want to fight for the Romans? They're not even, they're not even treating me as a citizen or they're not treating me well or vice versa. Why are we bringing them in the Legion? We don't even speak the same language. You know, it definitely broke down the unity of the legions and their fighting effectiveness. Mm. So, but I'm going to come back to that when we start talking about the barbarians. Um, okay. You know, going back to the population decline. So not only was there the Antonine plague, which was devastating for generations. I think it lasted for about 20 ish, 15, 20 ish years. So you think people were dying left and right. They're not having kids. Huge hole in the population. Now you also have coupled that with poor harvest. So it's not so much that it was a direct like famine for of like biblical proportions, but the harvest yields started going down pretty dramatically, right? Because the Romans didn't really fully understand crop rotation. So they weren't really rotating the crops and they kept trying to overfarm them and overfarm them. And then they would send barbarians in there to go farm it for them. So the pop, or the yield of these farms was going down. And anytime there's a food shortage, like there's a direct correlation to a drop in population. Like if you're hungry and starving, like the last thing you want to do is have another mouth to feed. So you're just, the population is going to start to stagnate and it did. So that was led to another reason. And if your population goes down, well, those are future soldiers that are going to come fight for you that, are just never going to exist or they're going to die of starvation young. So that's another reason. So you, a lot of them died of plague. A lot of them died of famine. And then there was the civil war. So like we kind of mentioned a little bit last year or last episode in the um, crisis of the third century, the amount of Roman blood spilled by other Romans is honestly astounding. Uh, you start looking, there was the year of four, em- I think six emperors one time, there's four emperors another. I think I said it was like 20 emperors in, 70, in 75 years. To the point that the Roman Empire actually split into thirds. There was the Palmyrene Empire, there's the Gallic Empire. For like 20 years, the Roman Empire split into thirds. And they were all fighting each other trying to get back. So the Roman, and every time a Roman general declared himself emperor, a Roman senator, and then tried to raise an army, and they would go fight another general or senator or influential person, and they would bring these armies on the field. They were both Romans. So every casualty that fought in that battle and died or was wounded and couldn't fight anymore, that was a Roman soldier that couldn't go fight a barbar- the Germans anymore. Yeah. If you think about it, it happens for 75 years. That's going to really, really add up and leave massive holes. So there's a famine, there's disease, and now you're fighting each other. So by the time you end this with fantastic generals, emperors like Aurelian, Diocletian, Constantine, they still are dealing with the fallout of this massive population decline that they've had to deal with. And they're fighting this now hordes of barbarians who are pouring over for this reason or that, but they have to figure out a way to increase their numbers. And they had to bring in barbarians to do that. So like Diocletian was one of the first to do it. Theodosius the first had you know during the first Theodosian dynasty had to do that as well in the Eastern Roman Empire. So at that point the Roman Empire resplit because Constantine after Diocletian reformed it into one, and then after Theodo- Theodosius had to split it back. And in order just to save the Eastern Roman Empire, he had to basically say, okay, we got to reorganize. Bar- you know, barbarians, you can come join our forces. We'll pay you as soldiers. We can grant you eventual citizenship blah, blah, blah. But he had to bring them in just to survive and fight off other barbarians like the Huns. I feel like one of the themes that we're going to revisit multiple times in this series is 
when your society begins to turn on itself, either, you know, something as explicit as a civil war or even, you know, maybe more broadly, you know, it could be like political dissent. It could be something that like, you know, as we'll see in France with the collapse of the Third Republic in World War II, uh, we'll see that like society, France as a cohesive, singular entity was was being shaken. Like it wasn't, you know, France didn't have a civil war per se in World War II, but they changed their, you know, it was not politically stable. I guess what I'm trying to say is like when it comes to civil war, like when your society starts tearing in on itself, that is maybe an indicator that, oh shoot, like if we if we don't fix this now, we might be in big trouble here in the future. Well, exactly. We won't be able to respond to a different kind of threat that we can't see now. It's interesting to kind of compare like when Julius Caesar crossed, you know, the famous crossing of the Rubicon against Pompey and like the civil war between Julius Caesar, who is arguably like the luckiest general ever to live and Pompey, like that was such a cataclysmic event in Roman history. But then you fast forward 200 years, 250 years, and it's like, oh yeah, this guy just declared himself emperor. He's raising an army. He's he's marching on such and such, who also is claiming to be emperor. And a bunch of Romans are going to get killed. And you know, yeah, it was it was like super novel when Julius Caesar did it. But after Caesar did it, it was like once it had started, it was super hard to get it to stop. Right, and that, he had set the example. He set the example. Octavian followed it, and then became Augustus, and then everybody else wanted to do it. And you know, it's kind of interesting, like. So we're talking about the fallout from these civil wars. Arguably, the biggest factor on the battlefield was just numbers, right? It was just a numbers game. Like if you're having Roman legion versus Roman legion, like I've said, they've had the same kind of training. They have the same kind of equipment. Like most things are equal. Yes, a general can make the difference. But if you're having like two generals find each other and – you know, it's kind of a toss up. A lot of times it's just the larger army wins. Not in the case of Julius Caesar. That's why I said he's one of the luckiest generals ever to live. And I mean mm. lucky in a lot of ways. But what that did, if you were the emperor of Rome, like Aurelian, for example, he had to march around with a massive, massive army. And that he had to take forces from all his other legions that were guarding the Rhine and the Danube and all of these other places, he had to pull those forces to him, A, so another general didn't have a large army, and B, so he had enough forces to push put down a general in case they did. And mind you, he had to reunite the three empires. So he had to march all the way to Syria, then back across the empire to go bring Britannia and Gaul back into the fold, which he did. But then there was also a, this kind of led to a restructuring again of the Roman army. So I mentioned Diocletian, bringing in foreigners essentially as his military. But under prior to Aurelian, uh, during the crisis of the third century, there was a, uh, an emperor named Gallienus who, because he was having to move across the empire to basically put out every little fire because he, A, couldn't trust anybody else to do it without trying to assume the throne. And B, there were just so many of them. He had to restructure the Roman army. So instead of it being primarily heavy infantry, it became primarily cavalry just so he can move across the empire quickly. And that fundamentally changed the Roman army because what if you're listening now, chances are when I say a Roman legionary, you think massive red, broad, broad rectangular shield. You know, they have the gladius. They probably have some type of spear. You know, they'll have the le- they'll have the, the eagle standard out in front of them, but everybody can think of a Roman centurion, a Roman legionary, and they have the same visual. This is completely different. They're all on horses now. And it, they were generally trained to move quickly over large distances. So they were light cavalry. So don't think necessarily Russell Crowe and, and Gladiator again. Colin, when I think of a Roman centurion, I think of you. <laughs> well, I'm German. Folks, you, you can't see you can't see Colin, but he looks like he could be a Roman centurion. Well, maybe of late stage Rome <laughs> of barbarian heritage. <laughs> the uh, like the gravy seals. Those <laughs> here in the United States, those like dudes that are like in the forties and fifties, like past their prime. Okay, first they, off, like, I'm not that old. Want to wear like tactical stuff? Yeah, first Colin's off, not, not that, that old, old, but. <laughs> But you said late stage Rome. It's like maybe if the legionaries were a little bit less, then that's what I was thinking. Gravy seals. Yeah. 
I just think of like a fat legionary trying to fit in his old armor. <laughs> there's I'm some, go there's fight. some good, there's some good memes right now, you know, with all this stuff going on in the Middle East about like, oh man, I gotta go fit in my old uniform. Yeah. So one of like this humongously fat like dude was with a beard and all was like trying to get in his Marine Corps camis again. It was like, I ain't super simper fitting in here. <laughs> oh, back, so, going back to bad, going back to the desert, boys. Going back, going back to the sandbox, huh? All yeah. right. Anyway, sorry no, to totally yeah. derail your point here. <laughs> no, that's good. It was fun. It's good conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the the crisis of the third century, really fundamentally changed the Roman army from the population just taking a nosedive to a restructuring of the army, focusing on cavalry, bringing in foreigners to fight, constantly shedding of Roman blood, distrust. I think that was a really good point you made about the distrust and the discord that these civil wars kind of sow because. I mean, think about like part of the Roman Empire. Most people don't realize this, but there's large chunks of the Roman Empire that just said, no, I don't want to be part of the Roman Empire anymore. And they just broke away. They just said, nope. And they had enough people to say, yeah, that's okay. It's just wild to think about that. It got to that point where things were so mismanaged and so bad that large portions of the empire were like, oh, we're going to leave. And it took like 20 years to bring them back. Yeah. Well, I mean, as the, as kind of to your point, it's like, the seeds of its own undoing were in its success. Like this juggernaut goes across Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, all the way to you know, the far reaches f- of Armenia. And- they made it to the Euphrates River. Right. Which is Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. They- right. Unbelievably far. Armenia, Iraq. <sighs> Unbelievable. From, if you Eng- think about- from England to Iraq. Yeah. like And they sustained and an empire. From Morocco to – yeah, it's and I guess that's the thing, right? Like and this is we live we live in 2023 with a global information environment, right? Like we've got the news and TV and the internet and we're still not a cohesive whole. Like can you imagine trying to have some kind of mutual identity that spans such a large geographic area? And then to your point, Colin, like when your core population dies off because of civil war, because of famine, because of, or, you know, they're, they've become so opulent that they don't want to join the military anymore. They want other people to go fight their battles for them. It's like, go figure these, you know, these other cultures who don't really consider themselves Roman, of course, like the military value is going to go downhill. Well, that brings me to the last point of external forces and, and just the barbarian, the weight of the barbarians bearing down on the Roman Empire. So I will say, first off, I think it's a misconception to believe that the early Roman Empire, the early Roman uh, Republic, even during the, the time, era of the king, their seven kings and the early imperial Rome, like they had it easy and they didn't face existential crises and they just kind of got lucky. To an extent, they did, but they faced the Carthaginians who nearly wiped them out. They faced the Greeks with Pyrrhus and they faced several other very strong enemies who all had an opportunity to defeat the Romans and prevent them from ever growing to what they were. They had diseases, they had events, but they overcame it. And so kind of contrast and what we're trying to do with this episode is show like, hey, the difference between the early period and the late period, and I'm just using early, late, to easily divide it, but really the declining era, these factors are the reasons we think that, I guess Jay and I think that they just weren't able to make a comeback. So, you know, part of the relentlessness of the Romans and this martial vigor was after Cannae losing tens of thousands of Romans, we're just going to go field another army and fight them again. And just doing that nonstop. Whereas now it's like, oh, the Goths are coming back again. Go hide, run to the hills. I don't want to fight them. Get out of here. Move the capital to Ravenna. That's that'll that'll do it. Um, but anyway, I digress. I just wanted to make that point. <laughs> do you so question? And apologies if this just completely derails you from your outline here. But do you feel like like what are the corollaries between Rome's military and its downfall? and the US military today. Cuz I feel like there's there's some similarities but there's also some key differences. And just curious troop shooting rec- from the hip here. Troop what do you what do you recruitment think? Recruitment and retention. So like obviously we're not 
we are not, we are to a point almost as a country where we are no longer growing. I think that is coming soon and that, that might be similar, but we haven't had like a true plague, like the Antonine plague or a civil war that's caused like a massive hole in the population. But COVID wasn't a plague. Yeah. <laughs> Don't even, we'll get started on that another time. You can go back and look at our freedom of speech episode if you're interested in knowing what Colin yeah, we, and Jay's opinion is. So the the true pretension of recruitment, like the U.S. the U.S. military is, I don't know if they're calling it a crisis yet, but like they're missing their recruiting numbers pretty dramatically. I think the Army's was like fit off by fifteen thousand last year or something, something yeah. like that. It was it was bad. Yeah. And again, like we need to think about that. If we were to go to war in four years, those fifteen that's fifteen thousand less troops we would have. Who would be like the seasoned NCOs? Who would be kicking open doors and leading squads? Like those are absolutely the ones that you want there, and we just we don't yeah. have fifteen thousand of them. And we're it stretches the U.S. military because then somebody's got to fill that gap. So are we going to overwork another person who's then just going to say bump this and I'm going to get out? That's another problem. Yeah. So I think there is a correlation between the numbers in the military, like who's joining how quickly they're joining, how long they're staying in. Like Rome, you joined the military, you were in for like 25 years. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now it's like you got four-year commitment. And now there's, you know, so I think that's a a correlation. I think the, there seems to be at a macro level, a sense of discord in the United States. And it is causing a lot of people to become more, I don't want to say anti-military, but cautious about the military. Like they, they don't want to go fight. Yes. The people I agree one hundred percent with you on that one. The people who would have gone and signed up to fight in two thousand three and did sign up to fight mm-hmm. would not do it again. One hundred uh, almost a hundred percent of cases would not do it again. And they're telling their Wait, kids Wait, do you mean wouldn't do it again if they could go back to two thousand three or they wouldn't do it again if as they if, were eighteen like, now current situation. if they were current if they were eighteen now but knew what they did in two thousand three. If they were able mm. to have what they the scene what they have seen now or kind of shaped their persona and but they were able to go back or to go fight now. Like say they're eighteen mm. again. Like, hey, I'm yeah. I was forty five, now I'm eighteen. I'm definitely not gonna go waste not my time. Join it. Not joining the twenty twenty three military. Yeah. That's and what they're you're telling saying. their yeah. kids not to as well. That's also kind of gets into yeah. recruiting, but it's they're also not even really fully supporting the military. Um, and I think that's it's not bad to say I want peace, but it's you're touting a fine line right there yeah. where like, okay, are we going to get into truly like anti-American forces? I'm speculating big time here, but if we're talking about a correlation, it's kind of like, well, you know, the Romans really stopped wanting to fight too. And well, we kind of yeah, don't want to fight either. It's almost like when, when the people of, you know, that you need the fighting age population – when they no longer believe in the idea of Rome uh-huh. or the idea of the, United, of the States. United States, right? Or the idea of the British Empire or the French Empire or, you know, the mandate of heaven for the Han, the Ming, the Qing, like you name it. Like it's kind of the same thing where if you don't believe in the idea of what you're fighting for, you're not going to go risk your life for it. Right. And I think today, like to your point, in 2000, heck, in 2001, 2002, uh, even 2003, people still believed in the idea of the United States. You know, we just won the Cold War and we just got attacked. We needed to defend ourselves. They killed Americans completely out of the blue from from our perspective. You know, we're going to go bring freedom to the countries who need it, right? Freedom, right? Like J. That was yes, uh, yes. Like it was. That's an idea that you can believe in without even really commenting on the the justness of it all, right? But like that's an idea that you can get behind. I think. In 2023, it's really hard. Forget, like, not even speaking about what happened in 2020 and the lack of trust that so many people have across the political spectrum, the loss of trust in our in our political institutions. But even now, it's like, what are we doing? The, you know, nobody wants to be, when I say nobody, I mean, like, polling indicates that, like, the average American does not want to do jack diddly squat about Russia, Ukraine. 
you know, pulling about like giving financial aid and, and weapons and stuff like that. That's one thing because that doesn't actually have any impact on the average American's life, except from, you know, this narrative talking point about, you know, the quote unquote billions of dollars that are going to Ukraine as opposed to, you know, my pocket. And that's another conversation. But the point being is that it's like most Americans especially, you know, high school students, college students type deal. What's, what idea is there to believe in and what, how does that idea require a military? I think that is the biggest correlation here between the Roman military and the U.S. military. That is a fantastic point. And I'm just going to leave it at that because that was really good. Mm-hmm. You know what? No, I'm not. Because now I'm going to say something kind of funny. <laughs> say it. For the Zoomers out there that are listening. So- Zoomers? What's that? Gen Z. I call them Zoomers. Oh, Zoomers? Okay. You know, Boomer, Zoomer, same thing. Uh, It's hmm. kind of unfortunate. Like Jay and I were not at fighting age quite yet in in the early early aughts. We're millennials. We're millennials, yeah. I can look back though at those times and like, yes, we were attacked. And whatever your stance on the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq were, like the levels of patriotism and the amount of unity in the United States mm. was borderline mm-hmm. intoxicating. And it's kind of sad <laughs> looking back at it. It's sad looking back at it because I'm like, man, like I remember as a like a middle schooler at the time, yeah, middle mm-hmm. school at the time, like everybody wanted to support one another. Everybody was waving American flags. Like yeah. it transcended every divide that we feel right now that is oh, yeah. very real completely transcended it to the point that like, I don't know, it's had people from all walks of life coming together and it was a beautiful thing. Again, whatever happened afterward and the decisions people made in power, not, not the podcast for that right now, but I do remember the people of the United States would have gone to do great lengths for America at that point. That was Rome in the Republic, I think. And that was even the imperial, in early imperial period. That was Rome. And Zoomers, I'm sorry you never got to experience like that little bit of bliss of yeah. like true patriotism and unity because it was great. That aspect was yeah. just being able to walk, just being able to walk through your town or your city or whatever, talk to people, support one another, like have a true community that transcended any other divide you might have. It was awesome. It's truly yeah. great. And I miss it. That's the one thing I, was- I miss about that. I just looked up just real quick what uh, George W. Bush's approval ratings were. And because of all U.S. presidents since since I've been alive, I think old W. Bush gets the worst treatment when the, the most undeserved worst treatment. That's what I'm trying to say. We should not we should not hate on W. Bush as much as as much as we do and i can't wait to hear everyone go what about iraq and blah 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 blah, blah. okay fair point <laughs> <laughs> but there was also that anyway that's another podcast episode but old w bush here he when he first got started his approval rating approval ratings were in the 60s something percent when september 11th happened his approval rating went up to 92 percent that is absolutely insane that 92 percent of the country said george w bush is doing a great job and quite frankly ladies and gentlemen he did that speech that he gave standing on the rubble of the twin towers like with those firefighters there oh gives me chills man it's right up there with that speech in independence day It's a new meeting to Independence Day. <laughs> yeah. As a drunk old guy goes and flies an F-18. That's right. Uh, also a great speech, but we digress. Back to Rome. Uh, back to Rome. <laughs> uh, walk down memory lane. Mm. So in the face of – so this is – I just want to give kind of a, a synopsis of like the, the barbarian invasions and what the Romans faced. So there's a few different theories as to why – like obviously barbarian – like why the barbarians wanted to invade Rome. You know, part of it is they were just a warlike people and they wanted to go fight. Part of it was they saw like the grass was always greener in Rome and they wanted a piece of that. They wanted that treasure. They, And then there was also kind of like environmental, ecological, like they went on the move because it was either getting too cold or 
too hot. And I don't know, it's climate change, it's hard to say which one. And depending on the time period, depending on the time period, that might affect why they were moving because when Rome was existing, there was a warming period. They were growing vineyards in like Northern England. So it was warm throughout the, the Roman Empire. It was very warm, but then it got really cold toward the end of the Roman Empire. So it might've been really cold and their, and their yield, their farm yield was going down and they wanted to go to Rome to get a piece. But then there was also other barbarians who were on the move and putting pressure on them to move. One of those barbarian groups was the, were the Huns. I have an interesting theory about the Huns. They, so the, the, the general consensus, and this, they're a steep people who came from Central Asia and they had migrated westwards very slowly, kind of uh, over decades, or actually even centuries, really into Eastern Europe. And they settled into kind of the area, what is now Hungary. Um, yeah, there you go. They kind of settled into that area and they raided around, put pressure on the northern part of the Eastern Roman Empire. And they pushed the Goths, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Franks, um, the Alamanni, some of the, the Alans, and some of those barbarians into Rome. With the Huns, I actually think that their ancestors hailed from Mongolia. There is, and this is kind of a reach, but I think it's fun. So there was a, a tribe from Mongolia called the Xiangju, Xiangnu. And they were somewhere around like 4th century BC and they invaded China from Mongolia and they kind of swept down and they were eventually pushed back. But then they started to migrate westwards a little bit and they kind of disappeared. And then a few centuries later, like the Huns all of a sudden appeared. And there's the DNA evidence is obviously spotty at best, but there is some link. So I'm thinking that the Xiangnu were like the very proto Huns as they started in like Mongolia and then moved, you know, thousands of miles over hundreds of years to the West, obviously, you know, mixing with local populations and adapting to their climates, blah, blah, blah. And they became a distinctive people, the Huns. But I think that's kind of where they hailed from. So that's just my theory. But so the Huns were fierce nomadic warriors on horseback. They put pressure on a lot of these barbarians, like the Alans, the which I think Alans, the Alamanni, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Franks. Then you had in northern Germany, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jukes, the Frisians. All of these barbarians started feeling that because once it's kind of like a domino effect or like a snowball, like once one group starts moving and putting pressure, it like it kind of cascades. So the Huns eventually pushed the Goths into Rome. And so the Goths had already been kind of venturing into Rome and kind of mixing across. But this really culminated with the Battle battle of Adrianople. So the Huns were moving into what is, I guess, southern Eastern Europe, kind of Hungary, Bulgaria, that area, pushed the Goths into the Eastern Roman Empire. And they ended up fighting the Goths, the Romans. And in 371, there's the Battle of Adrianople, where Emperor Valens led the Roman army to fight the Goths. And they were utterly annihilated. Adrianople is probably up there with like Canae and the Teutoburg Forest as far as like disasters for the military, uh, not only because of the number of Romans that were lost, but also because Valens was killed on the battlefield. So, and that hadn't really happened since, what was his name? Valerian was taken prisoner by the Sassanids in like 261. So Valerian had been taken, and that was a, that was a source of humiliation for the Romans as well. So the Sassanids also, by the way, were Persians. So Persian Empire was the Sassanid Empire prior to the Muslim expansion. So they they were a rival with the Romans for a long time. And Shapur I had taken him prisoner, humiliated the Romans. Then Valens, a hundred years later, dies, Valens, excuse me, dies at Adrianople. Disaster. Because now Theodosius has to take over, reform whatever military he can, like I mentioned, incorporate barbarians in his forces, try and hold the Goths at bay while he's dealing with and pushing the Huns westward. So you have the Goths. So the Ostrogoths were like the outer Goths and Visigoths were like the inner Goths. So Visigoths end up moving in, moving west as well into France and Spain. And the Ostrogoths move into part of Italy. The Franks, that's where we get the word France from. They were a Germanic tribe. They pushed into modern day France. That makes sense. The uh, Jutes, Angles, and Saxons moved into Great Britain for the most part. That's if you know anything about Great Britain, 
You heard uh, Sussex, Wessex, Essex. That's uh, you know West Saxon, South Saxon, East Saxon, and like East Anglia, East Ang- East Angles. That's where we get those names from, where where the Saxons and the Angles came and settled mm-hmm. in Great Britain. So all of this pressure was being put on because the Huns had started this migration, and before the really the third century, barbarian incursions were not uncommon and they were fought often, but there would be an army of like thousands or even tens of thousands. Now the Romans were having to fight hundreds of thousands. So it wasn't just like one army. It was a l- many armies of Goths and everyone that was coming with the Goths as well. So they were like a people on the move, not just a raiding party crossing the border, looking for some, some plunder and, and moving back in. So, you know, the Romans were now looking at a, where they don't have the numbers to field an army effectively. And they're having an increasing number of barbarians all over the border and they can't they can't it's like i think of the picture of like looking at a dam and like you see like one little water spurt in a crack and you're trying to put your thumb on it and then there's another one you try to put your thumb somewhere else and they just keep popping up and you can't hold it you can't hold the dam together um so much so porous was the border that it's interesting like roman towns up until this point were not really fortified rome itself had walls i think that were built initially, but it had expanded beyond the walls. So it, it had just grown into this huge city. They had to rebuild walls. They were called them the Aurelian walls in like 271. I think they were completed after he died, but they had to build walls because they're like, this is the first time we are now facing a real threat of barbarians making it through the border and coming this far into Rome and also other Roman armies, but other towns. So one of the defensive strategies was like, hey, we can try and create with from these forts uh, a defensive position and a rapid response. But more than likely, the town's going to have to hold the town and cities are going to have to hold on as long as they can. So we need to fortify all of them. So now, rather than this Pax Romana piece where in Gaul and Italy and Spain, you had unfortified towns, they were having to be fortified because the Goths were running rampant and the Huns and the Vandals and all that were too. So a couple other key battles that occurred that I do want to make note of. In 410, Alaric sacked Rome for the first time. You know, this was obviously the first time in like almost 800, I think 800 years that Rome had fallen. Brennus sacked it in like 397, I think I said. So do some quick math. Yeah, that's like 800. It's like 800 years of a difference. So and then in 455, the Vandals came back led by Genseric and sacked Rome. That's where we get the term Vandal, Vandalize. These Vandals came and sacked the city of Rome in 455, what was left of it. There was also a great battle, probably one of the most epic, I think, in late antiquity, the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. It was a coalition of Roman forces. I mean, think about this. This was 20 years. It was near Chalon in France, and it was 451, so it was about 20, what, five years before the fall of Rome. This last-ditch coalition of led by Aetius, who is often considered the last of the Romans because he was this great general, uh, politician kind of personality who tried to, he was kind of single-handedly holding this collapsing empire together toward the end. And he led this coalition of barbarian forces, Roman army versus the Huns and defeats him. So he defeated Attila, who was known as the scourge of God and defeated him. And, you know, he had to withdraw from the field. Unfortunately, Valentinian III ends up assassinating him because he got jealous of his prestige and all that. And he then is later assassinated. But at the barbarian, I think I just want to illustrate this, like the barbarian pressure was just so great. You couldn't fight all of them. Think about it. The Goths were coming down from Scandinavia, the Vandals from like, give or take Poland, the Franks from Germany. You had the, I haven't even mentioned the Picts and the Caledonians in Scotland coming down and the Scots, ironically coming from Ireland into Great Britain. And you had other empires like the Sassanids putting pressure on the Eastern Roman Empire on the Eastern Front, sensing vulnerability. So it was just truly holding these massive armies back with nothing left in a depleted force that doesn't really want to fight. So it was kind of a hopeless situation for him at that point. No, the, um, you know, I think, again, just thinking about the United States here, I think we're all kind of waiting for the first big American military defeat. 
you know, Vietnam doesn't really fit into this model because we didn't like the U.S. military, you know, at, from a tactical standpoint, there's not a single battle that was lost. Like, you know, even Tet was a tactical failure for, yeah, for Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Cong and the Viet, Viet Minh. Uh, so it's like it's not it's not even accurate to say that Vietnam, although strategically Vietnam was a complete disaster, you know, one could argue that you know Iraq in two thousand three was a complete disaster, that kind of thing. We still haven't witnessed this, you know, the United States military getting beat, and right, that will be an interesting time uh, in United States history because I mean, uh, as much as I love the United States, like it's going to happen. I pray to God it's hundreds and if not thousands of years from now, but point being is like when it happens, that will be an interesting, an interesting uh, moment, <laughs> inflection point for sure. Yeah. That's interesting because like, that's sort of what age, despite everything that happened during the, the crisis of the third century, Adrianople have Adrianople happened a hundred years later. Like, all of those bad civil wars and things were still considered like Roman on Roman. So it was not like, hey, somebody else came and beat us. Adrianople was like, hey, these this other group came into the Roman Empire and beat us badly. And the emperor was killed. So it wasn't just like, hey, we withdrew from battle or we marched into their country and we lost. It was they marched into our country and we lost. And it created a like the Romans... Roman Republic, they had this fear of the Gauls. That's why Julius like just went off on them and just slaughtered them because they had this like ingrained fear from 300 and something years earlier where they sacked Rome. Kind of same thing happened after in Adrianople. They just were like, what? We are not truly unstoppable. And they came here and beat us. What's going to happen next? And then just unwound from there. So yeah, the, it'd be interesting to see what happens to the U.S. when that happens because yeah, like Vietnam, it's like well, I mean we, I mean there are millions of people in Vietnam that died from that, and we never lost a battle, and it happened on the other side of the world. Same thing with Afghanistan and Iraq. It's like well, militarily we came in and we took care of business. It's just they outlasted the political cycle, so we left. Right. Yeah. I frankly, I just don't see. I don't see the American military like suffering a decisive defeat anytime soon. I still think that that's quite a ways away. I'm talking decades at a minimum. I don't know if we'll see it in our lifetime, but uh, at least, I mean, that's a, it's always possible, right? Like, you know, Tom Brady did in fact lose a Super Bowl or two. <laughs> so it's like, it's always possible that the greatest people can lose on, on any given Sunday. But, um, but, the point being is that I don't see that happening anytime soon. And that'll, that'll be a good point to come back to when we do our summary episode on, you know, is American decline or not? Like, what are the similarities? What are the differences? At least when it comes to military, generally speaking, I think there are some concerns. You know, we talked about like losing faith in this idea, uh, in the American idea, but I don't think that we've, you know, I don't think we've entered the realm of cascading, unstoppable, irreversible effects, that kind of thing. Well, Colin, thank you for walking us through the the downfall of the roman military and some of those some of those defeats and and giving us that background i really enjoyed getting to listen to that and for all of our listeners out there i hope that you did too and if you like what we're doing here on the lords of history please feel free to give us a five star review hit that subscribe button on whatever whatever platform you you are li listening to us on and then also feel free to give us feedback our email loinsofhistory@gmail.com we we take constructive criticism or just positive feedback is always nice too if you leave us a five star review and comment so that we can see your username we'll give you a shout out on the next episode so thank you to all of those out there who have done so. We're also down, if you have something you want to see for a future episode, a comment down below and tell us what you want to see us cover next. 
And with that, we hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to seeing you next week. Have a good one.